It took another night, rumbling through the countryside, for Deng Xiaoping to arrive at the first proper destination on his southern tour of January 1992. Wuhan, the thoroughfare of nine provinces, as it is known in China, and where Deng had stopped briefly the day before, is deep in the country's centre. Between Wuhan and Deng's next destination, Shenzhen in Guangdong province, the flat floodplain gives way to wave after wave of mountains before the land eases once more into the gentler topography of the Pearl River Delta, around which were arrayed the main stops of Deng's tour. Deng's train arrived at Shenzhen at 9am on January the 19th, 1992. Waiting at the station were, once more, an array of party officials. As he stepped to the platform, one moved forward we have missed you, he told Deng. Another added, the people of Shenzhen look forward to seeing you and have been looking forward to it for eight years. Eight years previously, on January 24th, 1984, during his winter vacation, Deng had arrived in Guangdong on his special train. He spent more than two weeks visiting the province and next door Fujian, including stops at three of the four special economic zones, Shenzhen, Zhuhai and Xiamen. That was the first time Deng had visited Shenzhen. 1992 marked the second. He would spend six days in the city before departing for Zhuhai across the Pearl River. The myth of Shenzhen is that it transformed from fishing village to megacity, but the reality is more complex. The area that became Shenzhen was not the sparsely populated countryside that the Chinese Communist Party liked to claim, but a vibrant border region with a number of thriving market towns, with a population of around 300,000. The city's progress was marked by landmark buildings. In the 1980s, the International Trade Centre, thrown up at a rate of one floor every three days, became China's tallest building and an emblem of Shenzhen's status as the country's new model city. On his tour in 1992, Deng ate at the revolving restaurants at the top of the 63-storey tower and endorsed the rate of progress he saw stretching to the horizon around him. He visited a factory making laser discs and China's first theme park, Splendid China, a park housing miniature versions of all China's great sites, the Great Wall, the Sacred Mountain of Taishan, the Forbidden City, the Patala Palace in Lhasa. A photograph shows Deng in a sober overcoat surrounded by his smiling, colourfully attired children and grandchildren with the stairways and white walls of the Tibetan landmark rising behind them. His visit would be celebrated in the famous song The Story of Spring. The year of 1992, that was yet another spring. There was a great man writing a magnificent poem in Shenzhen spreading splendour all over China like a spring breeze, moistening beautiful flowers like springtime rain. Shenzhen, Shenzhen, China's pioneer ship sailing across the sea. This is the Southern Tour podcast, and I'm your host, Jonathan Chatwin. This is the third episode of a series exploring the legacy of Deng Xiaoping's journey in 1992, following his route stop by stop and interviewing those with insight into the history of this period and the places Deng visited. Today we're joined by Joanne Du. Joanne Du is an award-winning architect and urban planner. She is Associate Dean of the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Hong Kong, 
and was formerly on the faculty of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She leads IDU Architecture, a research and design office based in Hong Kong. Du is also the founding academic director of the Shenzhen Centre for Design and is actively involved in the ongoing development and planning of the city. She is also the author of The Shenzhen Experiment, which was published this year by Harvard University Press. Juan uh, Du, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello, Jonathan. Thanks for the invitation to speak here. I wonder if we could start by talking about your first visit to Shenzhen. Well, you, you sort of start with this in the book, don't you? Um, yeah. Just give the listeners a bit of a sense of the place and your first experiences of, of it. Sure, yes. I, I went to Shenzhen first in 2005, and that was to work on the city's first Biennale of Architecture and Urbanism. What was, to me, quite memorable was that the city, when I first arrived, my first impressions were exactly the same as what I read and heard about the city, that it was really new, it was very modern, you know, the, it was full of high-rises and a very modern set of transportation, public transportation. And then as I worked on the Biennale and got to know the city better, I started to discover aspects of the city that are very different from what many people were writing about the city, but also saying about the city when I was actually even there in person. The first, I would say one of the first experiences that was really memorable was the scene I used to open the introduction of my book because I had just wanted to allow readers who have not been to Shenzhen or have not been to China, or even those, especially those who have been to Shenzhen and have been to China, to give them a more personal and almost visual experience of an aspect and a part of this city that was at the time very much unknown to the broader kind of especially international community. And that was the existence of the urban villages. So I, I do have to admit that my first fascination with Shenzhen really did start from kind of my own personal discovery, so to speak, of these really wonderful and complex and diverse neighborhoods that had quite a different set of characteristics than what kind of the outer image was. Yeah, the urban villages are something that perhaps listeners know a little bit about, but could you tell us a little bit more about how they developed? Because Shenzhen is unique in, in the sense that when it was established, it incorporated a number of existing villages within it, and, and they re retained a good degree of autonomy over time, didn't they? My first experiences and knowledge of the urban villages, I would have, now looking back, 15 years later, were quite superficial. What I saw the urban villages were, were these high density in terms of buildings and people compact neighborhoods where there were hundreds of little shops and fruit stalls and people playing pool and speaking on the street. It was just a very lively urban scene. And that was just very, very different from the rest of the city that was really dominated by roads for the car, for the, for the vehicle that I would say that if you have ever visited Shenzhen and you did not go into one of the urban villages, 
you would think Shenzhen is not a walkable city. You would think that it, it had no spaces for, for the pedestrian. So as an architect, that was the departure point of why I was so interested in the urban villages. As I, you know, throughout the years, as I start to research a lot more about the urban villages, I start to discover much more of the, the reason and logic behind why these, these neighborhoods were so different from the rest of the city. And a lot of that has to do with the difference of kind of land, land rights in China. I, I think it's, it's a bit difficult to explain to someone who doesn't know the urban villages if we don't talk about the difference in terms of urban and rural land status. So the urban villages develop very differently because for a few decades, their urban villages, even though they were in the middle of the city, were governed under a set of rules and regulations and laws that govern rural land. So villagers collectively had a lot more say-so over that particular plot of land, which is very different from, rural, uh, from urban land, which is the rest of the city. So one term sometimes I use to explain the way the urban villages are to a sort of international audience is the term almost like reservations. So if you imagine there are these, this very modern city that was planned according to a very car-dominant urban planning principles, and then you have these pockets or reservations that very much behaved as a, a rural settlement. However, because these rural settlements were right in the middle of this very kind of dynamic and economically driven city, the village settlement itself also mutated into this very uh, dense, full of businesses, full of uh, renters. And, and it's really the urban village term used to describe these type of neighborhoods. It's a little bit <laughs> misnomer, I would say. They, they do not certainly do not look like villages. I, I'm not sure, Jonathan, you, if you have mm-hmm. been to one. They, you know, if, if you didn't know what you were looking at, and you didn't know about the history of the urban villages in China, you, you would think you're just walking in a very, very dense urban neighborhood. So the, but because these, these neighborhoods or these communities were governed by each the village collective throughout the city, you also have a vi- very diverse set of characteristics from village to village. One of the, one of the myth about urban villages I try to address in the book was that there is this assumption all of the urban villages are the same. But in fact, there's a great diversity amongst them because of the, the fact that it's very much individual and community driven by, by the, the original villagers in that particular place. And this is, I would say, a quite different rules of governance compared to the way that most communities interact with their specific city governance or or municipal governance. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting experience, isn't it? Walking uh, in Shenzhen, as you say, it's a city that is dominated by, as many modern Chinese cities are, these vast perpendicular highways that, that run across it. And then as you're wandering, very often you will sort of unexpectedly stumble upon one of these urban villages and they have a feel that's very different from the sort of mirrored 
glass skyscrapers that perhaps people would associate in in their mental image of of Shenzhen. But maybe let's leap back a little bit and, and talk about how they how they came to to be enclosed within the the boundaries of, of, of Shenzhen and talk about some of the the myths and the realities of of the of the special economic zone because your book does an excellent job in overturning the the, the oft parroted narrative that Shenzhen was a tiny and insignificant fishing village uh, from which an, an instant city arose very quickly. So if we could just rewind a little bit to the late 1970s and the, and the beginning of the reform and opening period, which is when Shenzhen dates its modern iteration from. And could you just talk a little bit about how the city or how the special economic zone rather was was established and, and what the Chinese government and, and Deng Xiaoping, who was in charge of that point wanted to achieve through its establishment? Uh, sure. So I have tried to, for the purpose of the book, and, and to be able to, in some, in some ways, I, I try to humanize the Chinese city, in this case, Shenzhen. And, and I've tried to use ideas and terms that I hope it doesn't matter what city, what nationality you're from, that you, you can start to Kind of peel back the facade and, and try to understand a bit more. So so that that's why in the book I try to set up the myth versus reality through four very simple terms that I I think also have quite deep meanings and and rever- reverberations throughout the book. And that's people, place, time, and purpose. So to address your question specifically about the period of the 1970s and 80s, at the, just around the time, the first decade, let's say, the decade prior to the 1979 establishment of the Shenzhen economic zone. So one of the myths is that, you know, obviously you said that, that there's so many uh, articles that, that would just use a very broad stroke, say, oh, it was a small sleeping fishing village. And... And, and often, at the same time, they would say it only had uh, 30,000 people. It's difficult to imagine that it's a small sleeping village, even at 30,000 people, right? But from my research, that it wasn't, uh, wasn't 30,000. It wasn't a small sleeping village. It, it, it had nearly 2,000 traditional villages and townships. It wasn't just villages. They had, there was townships that dates back uh, centuries. Even, and that was really important for me to clarify: is that the people um, that existed in the city in 1979, many of them. So this is even before the migrants start to arrive. This, the people who who had lived in in these places, they their ancestry was there. You know, their their ancestry had either farmed or fished or ran banks and, and gold shops in in this land for for centuries so there there was a, there was a real thriving community who had absolute relationships to the land and, and connections to that land and beyond and that bring me to this issue of place is that there is also this myth that the modern city of Shenzhen was planned based on a blank slate or tabula rasa in planning terms, that there wasn't really much anything there. So therefore, it, it was easy to put roads and towers and everything there. 
But the geography of Shenzhen is a very rich and diverse one. It has it's, it's part of the estuary. It had many fishing ponds and rice fields, and partly because it, it had it, it was full of rivers and streams um, and mountains. It was actually a very fertile agricultural land for for centuries. The other the other thing that I found surprising reading the book was that they hadn't even got the industry right. I mean, the myth of the fishing village. Right. <laughs> Actually, the industry that, that, that has the, the, the longest historical line in your book is, is the salt industry, isn't it? Yes, yes. Well, the salt industry, I started with the salt industry partly because it, it was important to set up, for me to, in some ways, making a provocation and making an argument is that the, the locational importance of this particular site was actually the, the, the earliest urban settlement was always an urban settlement. It, it was this kind of salt administrator that was rooted here during the Han Dynasty, and this is around mm-hmm. 200 BC. And, and that's what kind of eventually turned this particular region, in, today we know as Shenzhen, into a, a capital city of the entire Pearl River Delta region for centuries. And that it was a capital city through military terms, in terms of protection, but also administration in terms of governments. It had a magistrate court, it had schools and, and et cetera there. So, it, you know, in part, I was trying to be provocative to say, look, you know, even this 200 BC beginning that I have sort of chose to start telling the story, you can certainly go back further. But the, the, at least the departure point I chose to start was a urban urban settlement. It wasn't even a fishing or agricultural beginning. Right. One of the things that a lot of a lot of people won't know about Shenzhen is is its its older history. People will be familiar with the Reform and Opening Period and perhaps a little bit before before that. And we talked about it being a bit of a myth that it grew out of this fishing village. But can you take us back a little bit further uh, and talk about uh, some of the research that you did? in Shenzhen's and, and the area around it, it's, it's long history. And you went back and found a lot of primary sources which haven't been seen before. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I've tried for, I mean, I, I mentioned I was trying to, to make a few provocations. Of it's kind of the, the myth that I, I think that has been a bit misleading of its people, place and purpose. And the fourth one's time is that there's so much been made as of, of its like 40 year history, right? You hear that oh, in 20 years it became this, or in 30 years it became this. Now it's like in 40 years it became this. So, what I really wanted to, to challenge the way we think about cities and the way we think about place in terms of time. That, as, as you know by now, that when I subtitled the book China's Instant City, it was, it was a bit of an iron, ironic turn. Is so from my research. Is so what made Shenzhen special was was not instant at all. It goes back it's to its centuries of history. You mentioned earlier about I mentioned that during the Han Dynasty was when the salt administration and governance was set up in the region. There's another another site or another particular history I focus on in the book that I think it's it's quite telling, and I hope I hope prove my point is that not only did not only were there past significant history, but that history really had direct impact on its modern urbanization. And, and one example I use 
is the Chiwan Port in Shenzhen's Shekou District and Shekou's Industrial Zone. So many people say the Shekou Industrial Zone was the predecessor of Shenzhen because the Industrial Zone was set up in 1978, and it really was kind of a singular industrial zone that was so successful. It invented a lot of rules of employment, rules of kind of the way that individual workers could engage its, its say, in, industrial zone leaders and such. And that Shoko port was set up on the site. The first port was called Chiwan, Chiwan port. And through my kind of digging through the history is that Chiwan port actually goes back to, you know, to very ancient, to the, it, it, it operated as its height actually during the Tang Dynasty. This is around, so say, 600 to, to, to 900. And Chiwan Port was one of the most important port cities on the Maritime Silk Road of the South China Sea. And this particular port allowed for all the ships that was coming into the Pearl River Delta and then to Guangzhou and then up the stream to into in, inner parts of China, all of the ships had to stop here for three days and pay kind of respect to the local Tianhou goddess and to, to the lo- local authorities. And this port, there were, there were one of the sources I use is kind of these local histories and local local records that they keep. And one of the scenes that described was this, this city on the sea, that there were so many ships that, that was in the Chihuahua Harbor, it looked like Mirage City. And, and that kind of describes how, how much of a kind of important site it was. And this port was, you know, throughout more recent centuries was forgotten and it fell into disuse. However, when Yuan Geng, the, the Shekou industrial zone leader, first, first tried to locate a site for the Shekou, he turned into history books and he found that, that there was this port in this deep sea harbor. And because they really had limited time and limited resources, after his inspection along was experts all over the, the coastline of Hong Kong and Shenzhen, they, they found that actually the historic location of this particular Chuan port was still the best location to quickly, minimum cost and time to turn it into a deep sea harbor. And this really then allowed the Shekou Industrial Zone to build up very quickly and to be the entry point of so much goods Creed and building materials to, to really come into the city. And this particular kind of maritime history of the region, I would say, I, is also one of the most overlooked aspects of the, the place that we became the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone, is that because there was this century's history of sailing and seafaring and trading, um, the communities locally in this place had had kinships and, and relationships and say the diaspora all over South China and even you know as far as say Iran or, or or Africa. So that when Shenzhen became designated as a special economic zone, the local population through the through their own kinship network, through their own past trading network, 
they were able to be, they were able to quickly mobilize individuals who were interested to invest into a small umbrella shop who were interested to to really try to set up a a, a small kind of radio factory. In, in fact, I, I mentioned somewhere in the book in, in Deng Xiaoping's chapter the idea that you know I found literature that supported this that the idea for a special economic zone in Guangdong really first came from overseas Chinese merchants who you know immigrated to say to Taiwan or Singapore or Malaysia and that was trying to also work with local leadership in Guangdong to try to say well if we want to experiment if we want to see how can we kind of jump start the Chinese economy perhaps we can try this perhaps we can try a special export processing zone like Taiwan to be able to inject some new investments and new trades, new channels of commerce. So, so this is why that, you know, from, from geographic aspect, from kind of this uh, human aspect, from economic aspect, this history that happened in the region prior to 1979 are very much intimate, intimately related to the way the special economic zone and the city have developed in the past 40 years. It's very, very difficult for me to imagine that without these sort of centuries, so to speak, centuries in the making, without these connections and tradition and linkages and customs centuries in the making, it's difficult for me to imagine what type of a city Shenzhen would have become or if it would have been successful at all. I mean, a, a lot of people feel of, uh, that Shenzhen is the city of, of migrants, don't they? They, they view it in that way, that it's a, a place where people come from all over China. But your book does a very good job of explaining that there was a, a large existing population within the boundaries of the, of the SEZ itself, which was, which was pretty big, wasn't it? The original SEZ was this patch that now is the, the, the central districts of Shenzhen. So mm. that was about 100,000. But over the entire Shenzhen city, so even in 1979, it was already Shenzhen city. There was 300,000 people, and they were distributing through about 2,000 kind of agrarian or kind of township communities. So it's it's far from the the fishing village that the CCP liked to make out. When the special economic zone was established, it was one of one of four. And Shenzhen is by far and away the, the most successful of, of those four. What were the aims for the Special Economic Zone? What was the purpose um, of establishing it? Um, as, as, as the name indicates, it, there is something special about it in, in terms of right. what people were allowed to do there, right? Right. So purpose was one of the four that I, I tried to set up as kind of uh, a misunderstanding of Shenzhen's Special Economic Zone and Shenzhen versus, kind of from my perspective, the, the purpose for all of the special economic zones, but especially for Shenzhen, the sort of the outward purpose of, of really launching the, the reform openings and, and set, setting up the special economic zone today is kind of, uh, I, I would say, really shown as this visionary planning of Deng Xiaoping, of the Beijing central government to essentially turn China into a very kind of rich and powerful economy. 
So what I tried to set up was that the purpose of the special economic zones and even the opening reform was not so grand. It wasn't to turn China into the second economy in the world. It was to really help the, the country who, that was struggling at the time because China in 1979 had just came out of 10 years of cultural revolution. So there was a real economic stagnation. There, there were widespread poverty throughout the, throughout the country. So I, I set the, the purpose of the special economic zones and the, the reform opening was to simply allow the, the people in the, to have a better life, to no longer be poor, to be able to have to be able to enjoy a certain quality of life that people really didn't have the time. So the reason why I want to emphasize this purpose is that I, I do think there is the driving motivation be, behind many of the people, whether it's from Dunn or from the city, the earliest city mayors or government, or the, you know, the migrants who came to the city, their purpose wasn't to, 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 to build, say, a grand um, dream. Their purpose was simply to pursue certain life that they wanted to be able to, to take control. They wanted to search for a different way to live, for a different way to work. And, and, and in many ways, the, the, that particular search was, was the opposite of how China was being governed and how people lived in the 1970s. So this is part of the reason why I said that Shenzhen this was not only an experiment, it was a critical experiment. It was to experiment with something that the rest of the country didn't have at the time. And in fact, it was trying to experiment with a set of rules and operations, you know, economic reforms to political reforms. That was in some ways in the direct opposite direction from the way in which the city, uh, sorry, from the way in which the country had been governed since 1949. One of the interesting things about the history of the city is that certainly over the last 20 years, it's been held up as a as a model, hasn't it, for the development of yes. other cities around China. And, and you know, numerous occasions where you know, the Chinese government have tried to replicate the success that they had or that Shenzhen had and its people had. What, what do you think was, was special about Shenzhen? Because as I said, it was established alongside uh, three other special economic zones, which which haven't you know they have been successful in a smaller way but certainly aren't internationally known in the same way that Shenzhen is and over the years the, the CCP have set up other you know coastal development areas and, and and special trade areas to try and replicate the success of of, of Shenzhen and, and haven't always been successful in in doing so so what do you think it is that's that's special about Shenzhen and perhaps its people that has made it you know the grand success story that, that it is today in certainly yeah. in economic terms, anyway. Right. Yes. Well, that that's the that's that's the million dollar question um, <laughs> that I, I I hope through through the chapters in my book I've I've only started to really peel uh, back the layers and address that. Right. What, what is so special about the special economic zone, mm. so to mm. speak? I I think there are many. There was a few I chose to uh, conclude on in the conclusion of the book. And one of the one of the 
I would say ideas that I, I really come to to very much appreciate, and, and and I want to try to advocate for this going forward when people are speaking about setting up special special zones, right? Whether that's in China or in Latin America or in South Africa or in Europe, is that Shenzhen, while it's true, Shenzhen was set up as a city and a special economic zone. I think when people speak about the success of Shenzhen and when they try to either replicate it or borrow from, from it, they forgot also the city part. That is to say that what I think makes Shenzhen very special and unique is that it's the earliest kind of city government, sort of municipal government, whether it's you know, from kind of the mayor's office onward, even in the first five years of setting up uh, Shenzhen. So this is, say, 1979 to 1980, the first decade. The, the goal and the, the ambition very much turned very quickly from setting up an industrial uh, kind of processing zone or just an economic zone. There was this vision that and this desire to make Shenzhen a real place not only an economic zone, not only an export zone, but a real place and real kind of livable and rich city. So even in that first decade, there was a, a big investment and an intention to build not only businesses, but also arts and culture. You know, Shenzhen University was set up within five years of the special economic zone. You know, there was the kind of the, the public library. Shenzhen has a very great public library system and the public library started very, very early on. So I think that is one of the aspects that has been overlooked, but that is also very easy, I think, for other government and other cities and, and other countries to really look at is that you don't only build an economic zone. It's, it, it's, it's not only about GDP growth and generation. It's about making a place that makes people feel welcome and they can set up their lives and that they can really mm. live in, into a real city. And, and I think this is something that is at once so simple, but also seems so counterintuitive, right? Uh, because so much of what has driven the, the narrative and the focus on Shenzhen is the economic development. And here I am trying to say <laughs> what makes Shenzhen so special wasn't only the economic reforms and economic kind of development. What allowed for that economic development, I would propose, is this, the Shenzhen allowing, Shenzhen becoming a place that can allow individuals and, and allow people to be able to set up their, their, their dream job, set up their dream company, and to be able to pursue. So I actually, in some ways, I think the economic development was a consequence of the city and not vice versa. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how um, much effort and energy the CCP have put into when they've tried to replicate uh, the Shenzhen effects. They've put a huge amount of energy and effort into the, the hardware of the city in right. terms of building the Grand Avenues and the skyscrapers and the, and the big um, city squares but what you're talking about is much more to do with the software isn't it to do with the culture that is developed there and and, and some of the the smaller 
more human aspects of, of living in a, in a city. I mean, and in a, a little while, I might ask you about Xiongan's eating things, you know, grand new city in the north. But, but I just want to leap back and, and talk a little bit about Deng Xiaoping and, mm. uh, and his role in Shenzhen's development, mm-hmm. because anyone who visits Shenzhen pretty much even if even just by accident, you will be confronted pretty much relentlessly with pictures of and statues of Deng Xiaoping. He is everywhere, isn't he? And Xinjiang yeah. Museum has a has his bedroom where he slept when he came on the Southern Tour in 1992, and the the minibus he travelled in. <laughs> yeah. So he really is a, an icon to the city. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about why it is that he's so important in the history of the city and? He made two very famous visits there, didn't he? One in 1984, mm. and then and then the Southern Tour in, in 1992. How significant were they in in terms of promoting the development of Shenzhen? Yeah. So I have tried to to strike a trying to strike an even balance when it comes to to Deng Deng Xiaoping's influence on the city. I have to say that in, in my book, the chapter on Deng Xiaoping's visits to Shenzhen was probably the latest chapter to be added to the book. Partly because I wanted to emphasize an aspect of the history of Shenzhen that was less known and and everybody knew about Deng. And partly because I would come to discover that for as much as influence and impact Deng had on Shenzhen, he has only been to the city twice. And Mm. so it is the the two times that, that was essentially written to the history books, right? The 1984 visit and the 1992 as part of the 1992 Southern Tours. So here's kind of an interesting dichotomy of Deng and Shenzhen. So on one hand, Deng has only been to Shenzhen twice and total less than seven days. <laughs> and I would, you know, I, I, it would be interesting to really look through human history to see, has there ever been a leader who was so closely integrated with kind of this founding um, narrative of a great city who have only been to the city twice <laughs> at less than seven days? So, you know, I'm thinking of like Alexander the Great, Caesar Rome. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. I, I have to say, this is, this, this, I found that this was quite a unique case. But I did decide eventually to include him in the book because it was it would be very difficult to talk about why there was Shenzhen and why there was and how the special economic zones and reform openings were instigated in China without speaking about them. But also, you know, having uh, worked and lived in, in the city for a long time, uh, almost 15 years now, so even though the pragmatic side that, yes, Deng have only been there twice, and he, you know, the city was set up in 1979. Deng's first visit to Shenzhen was five years after it's set up. Mm-hmm. So he really wasn't part of, say, the on-the-ground kind of operation of how this city, in terms of its governance, in terms of experimentations, in terms of its kind of innovations of say economic reforms or cultural reforms. He wasn't very he wasn't the one I that let's say that designed or pushed for those agendas. However, he did allow it and he did encourage it. 
there's kind of this famous saying that that some of the books on Deng would cover, and I mentioned it in the book, is that when the earliest kind of mayor's office and city governments in, in that first decade went to ask whether it's the Guangdong provincial leaders or Beijing's national leaders for support because they were struggling, very, very much struggling during that first decade, you know, Deng's response was like, we, we don't have any fund to give you. We don't have any money but we will give you power. We will give you the right to decide what you can do so long that it's not illegal. You can set up your own rules and your own regulations. So this was incredibly, I think, empowering to Shenzhen. And I really think this is you know, one of the other kind of special and unique aspects that really allowed the city to have a very much kind of bold and experimental mentality and, and this kind of experimental bold mentality really percolates from the, the central leadership, the municipal leadership in the government of Shenzhen, all the way down to the enterprises, schools, and individuals. It's, you know what, we have a challenge, let's just try something. Let's try to see what we can do. Let's, if we don't have the, the set of product, let's invent something. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. So, so in this way, Deng has a very special place in, in Shenzhen and in people's heart because he was the one that really gave Shenzhen its freedom. And, and it was at a time, especially during the first decade of reform, when there was you know, a lot of questions. And this is something that I think many people forget when they, when they recount whether it's China's reform history or, or Shenzhen's history is how difficult that first decade was. It wasn't this, let's launch this reform and opening, and then you know, everything just took off from there. No, the first decade was full of doubts and kind of criticism and uh, setbacks and confrontations and arguments. It was very much an oscillation be- between, is this the right thing to do? No, it's not the right thing to do. Is this still communist? No, no, it's already capitalist. Already capitalism, we need to we need to put stop to it. So there was very much this oscillation, constant oscillation, constant questioning of whether even Shenzhen should exist or to be shut down. And during that first decade, all the way till you know his tour in 1992, especially the tour in 1992 when he arrived at Shenzhen, he basically declared, "This is the right path. This is the direction we will go." for 100 years without change. So he he was and still is very, very important to Shenzhen, is in some ways the citizens, I would say, the citizens of Shenzhen, especially those who went to Shenzhen in the first decade, who remembered how difficult it was and how much the city and the way the city worked, the enterprises, how much it was questioned and criticized you know, either locally or, or nationally, done, I think, really to, to his credit, really did put a level of a degree of confidence and a degree of empowerment in, in the people, in the local governance and in the local communities. One of the interesting things about visiting Shenzhen and now and, and thinking about Deng's legacy is that there's a lot of talk that Deng as a as a figure of recent 
communist history is is being sidelined a little bit. You know, there have been people who talk about museum displays where Deng has been, you know, sort of pushed into outer rooms where Xi Jinping's dad, who was obviously responsible for Guangdong for quite a period of time, his role in, 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 the, in the process is, is emphasised. And I wondered if you, mm. you could talk a, li- a little bit about that and what your sense of the current leader's attitude towards Deng Xiaoping and Shenzhen is because, and maybe we can we can draw uh, Xiongan here, this new zone up in the north where um, Xi Jinping is kind of seemingly hoping to recreate some of that Shenzhen magic. But what what, what do you feel that, that the current leadership's attitude is to the Shenzhen story and, and Deng Xiaoping's role in it? It's inter- interesting you have already picked that up. I that certainly has been a I would say an attitude, attitude shift in the past five years when it comes to Deng Xiaoping. And, and I would say the current prevailing attitude of the city's, say, whether it's civil servant or, say, uh, government uh, workers, is I, I would say it's one of caution, meaning they're cautious not to overemphasize done. So in their words, it is, I think, one of the, the last times when I was at the Shenzhen Planning Bureau and we had a discussion about setting up, say, a, a small exhibition on Shenzhen's planning history. Mm. It's true, you're right. I mean, I it was, this was maybe a year ago. It was the first time, I, I would say, that I've heard a you know, a planning official, a civil servant in the city, being hesitant about putting Deng Xiaoping's name, say, on a timeline that really, you know, discuss kind of the major milestones of the, the establishment of the special economic zone. And and I have to say that the first time that happened, I, I was surprised because, you know, I've been working in the city since 2005 and working very closely on a number of projects with the city planners and local government. And, and this is quite new, this caution about not only emphasizing, say, Deng's role in the establishment of the special economic zone. But at the same time, I, I don't think, I didn't feel there was a big push to say, to have to put Xi Jinping's father Xi Zhongxin, you know, all of the exhibits or all of the timeline. So mm-hmm. I, I, so I, I think there is an apprehension and caution in the, in the government currently about how exactly to tell this particular story. And, and, you know, from my own personal and perspective, professional experience, this is only, this is very recent. This is only maybe in the past year or two. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting to speculate, isn't it, where, where that reticence is, is coming from. But I think it's easy to assume with Chinese politics that it's some sort of directive from the top, whereas very often it's people trying to second guess what they think is the right thing to do. And there does seem to be an idea swirling around at the moment that she has some reluctance to emphasise Deng's 
Zheng's role in, in not just the development of Shenzhen, but the reform and opening years. Yeah, there's lots of different potential reasons for it, but of course, no one, no one truly knows, do they? What, what would yes. you think is the link between Shenzhen and then this new city that is being planned up in Hebei province, um, just sort of southwest of, of Beijing? It was announced in 2017 to great, great fanfare. It's intended to be this sort of more livable, more ecological um, city, a place where Beijing can sort of push some of its state-owned enterprises, its hospitals, its universities. And it is different in, in lots of crucial ways from, from Shenzhen, not, not least that it's not, you know, it's not a coastal area. It's not close mm. to any areas where foreign investment might might naturally come from as Shenzhen was. So what's your sense about what she is seeking to achieve with this new city up in up in Hebei province. I remember when the say the Xuan Yu zone was announced and was rolled out in China. And what, what was interesting, and I, I think I mentioned a, a little bit uh, of this in the book, was that there was so from kind of the state media perspective and. Um, there was very much this emphasis to to pitch, right, to pitch the Xuan Yu area as the next Shenzhen. And there were, you know, there were headlines that says, you know, Shenzhen, you know, look to Shenzhen for the 80s, look to Shanghai for the 90s, mm-hmm. and, you know, for the future, look to, look to Xuan. So uh, certainly there part of the drive for the support and enthusiasm and confidence that Xi'an would be successful and will be successful. There was an effort to connect that to, to Shenzhen. I, I say it in the, say, 2017, 2018. I see a little bit less of that now. And I, I think part of that, it is related to what we were just speaking about a little bit earlier, is that there is this effort to, in some ways, for Xi Jinping to want to set up his own legacy, right? And, and not only as a continuation or a, a propagation of something that, that was already done before. However, if you look into the way that Xuan New District uh, was planned, there are some interesting similarities. The, the area of Xuan New District is exactly the same size as Shenzhen City. It's about 2,000 square kilometers. The earliest kind of local government body that Beijing has assembled to be in Xi'an, from the planners to the kind of the chiefs, many of those people were directly taking from Shenzhen. Mm-hmm. And, and many of the you know, urban planners that's involved, that continues to be involved in Xi'an, were are the urban planners that were first involved with planning Shenzhen. So through these aspects, you know, the, we, we can understand that there very much is this, this relationship between the two. In terms of the differences, I mean, you, you mentioned some already, right? It's location, et cetera. I, I would say that it is very, very different because in many ways, what I've tried to present Shenzhen in the book is that it, it was very much equal, let me say maybe equal part top-down planning was bottom-up development. 
there was so much uh, of what has happened in the city and what was invented in the city and what became successful in the city that didn't come from top-down planning and policy, but really was created by individuals and communities out of their own kind of drive and, and, and either their drive or their desperation to be creative, to be innovative, and to be willing to take the risk and, and to go the extra mile. I, I would question if we would have that, if we can replicate that in Xi'an today. And that's why, you know, I, I was saying earlier is that in some ways we have over we have overlooked the importance of people and the type of people and people's mm-hmm. mentality when it comes when it comes to setting up these new zones. Is that I, I do think that of course, people migrate for economic purposes. And this is the history of migration, whether it's in China or all over the world, right? Migrants move and leave their homes and leave their familiar uh, environment in pursuit for better jobs and, and better environment. But it's not only money. I, I think there's also a degree of freedom, a degree of believing that if they move to this place, there can be opportunities for them. And, and that opportunity, I, I do believe, is not only one of, of a higher pay. I do think it is, there is this kind of desire to want to go to a place, to migrate to a place where it would give them opportunities to live the life that they want to live and in the way in which they want to live and to, to explore and, and to really create something new. So in, in this ways, you know, I, I, I would question, you know, do, do we say now in 2020, can we replicate the same spirit, this kind of new wonder and, 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 and new spirit of wanting to reinvent a city, wanting to reinvent a country in today versus, say, 1979, 1980, you know, the, the the historical time period of where China is today and where the global economy is today are very, very different from the 1980s. So there, there are certainly a lot of risks to, to, to draw too much parallels without consider, considering the place and the time and the purpose behind the, the, the setting up of, of Shenzhen in the 80s versus setting up today it'll be interesting to see won't it over the next 10 years or so how how Xiong develops and it, it is fascinating to see Xi Jinping attaching his name quite publicly to, to yeah. this project well um, I, I I would I would venture to say for you know I, I, I for as long as the current leadership are in place Xiuan will be successful <laughs> well, they, they certainly <laughs> seem to be spending a a lot of money on it. It's, uh, yeah, it's I think, yes. the biggest public works project in Chinese history, which is which yes. is saying something. Yeah, it could it could only succeed, right? I mean, <laughs> in, in the current structure, it could only succeed, and and that's very different. Again, right? It yeah. could only succeed if it has problems. Beijing will be there to support it in, at all cost. This is very different from Shenzhen. Shenzhen during the first decade was constantly facing bankruptcy. The government, the enterprises in Shenzhen was constantly facing bankruptcy with no one to bail them out but themselves. So I do think that is, 
again, you know, kind of the psychology of individuals, and I don't just mean individual person, but individual, whether it's enterprise or it's a government, that is also quite different. It is like if you give a, a government or a company, let's say, the sense of responsibility to say, you know, you need to succeed on your own terms, hmm. right? We will support you through if you make the right decisions and you can prove to us you're making the right decisions and you can go forward. That's very different from saying whatever happens here, we're, we're going to go for it. We're going to push for it and we're going to back you up. So, you know, it, I think I do think it's a very, very different set of relationships between, say, a central governance and a district governance between Beijing and Shenzhen in the 80s, or even Beijing Shenzhen today, versus Beijing and Xi'an now. So, so this is why, in many ways, I actually don't think it's that productive to be speaking about operational differences or similarities mm. between Shenzhen and Xi'an, because I, I think at the root of it, the two were set up for complete different purposes, and therefore. You know the, the the rules of government, the the ways of civic engagement are completely different. What's been quite interesting is that sort of simultaneous with being announced, and then particularly over the last year, development seems to construction seems to have picked up there. That the Chinese government seemed to envisage a new role for Shenzhen. So, just mm. to, to finish off. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the plan that was put forward in the summer of, of 2019, which seemed to, well, some people interpreted it as a response to the protests that were happen- happening across the border in Hong Kong. The State Council announcement said that the city was to become, quote, a capital of innovation, entrepreneurship and creativity with global influence, and that it was to become, again, mm. a pioneering demonstration zone of socialism with Chinese characteristics, using a phrase, of course, that was made famous by, by Deng Xiaoping. It seemed right. an ambitious document, but it did seem to suggest that there are going to be changes happening in the governance um, of Shenzhen in the, in the near future. Could you talk a little bit about what, what you know about that and whether there have been any any changes thus far? I, I, I would say, you know, from my own personal and professional interactions with the city, with different levels of government, I, I think the change is that of, of caution. <laughs> I, I would say is that part of the reason why I was very fascinated with Shenzhen, even back in 2005, one was, say, my, my you know, on-the-ground interests with the urban villages, but another one was my conversations and experiences with the kind of government leaders and workers and planners in Shenzhen, I found that they were so different from the rest of, from many of the other major cities, let's say, that I had visited and worked with, whether it's Shanghai or Beijing. And part of that, it was that the, even though they were civil servants and they held important political offices, when they spoke, it was one of openness and frankness. And and actually admitting mistake, saying, "Oh yeah, we we that wasn't such a great thing. We we're we're going to change that, or we actually don't know how to do that. What what do you think? Do you have any suggestions?" 
And that was just incredibly different from this very cautious attitude of a lot of, you know, city leaders and, and urban planners in, say, in Beijing. And, you know, that's one of political necessities, not necessarily saying which one is better, but it's saying that they were very, very different. So I, I, one of my observation is that, you know, especially in the last year is the, 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 you know, the government workers and office government office leaders and planners, they're much more cautious when they are, say, speaking various issues. They're more careful with their words. They tend to be, you know, more closed off, I would say, from my experience from before. So, you know, I I do think that you're, I I think you, you are right. I think one of the reasons why that Shenzhen has been designated this new status, say in 2019, having, say, a national importance of a, a socialist city, is the same reason, I think, why Shenzhen was chosen. One of the reasons Shenzhen was chosen to try to start up this special economic zone in the 1980s. Jonathan, I think you should be familiar with, with this history, is that just prior to 1979, for a period of five to 10 years, there was a great exodus of people from Guangdong province, but also from all over the country, of people illegally smuggling across the border, right? Leaving, leaving uh, Guangdong to go into Hong Kong. Hmm. It was, you know, one of the, one of the reasons why it was easy to paint Shenzhen prior to the, say, the urbanization and the special economic zone as a very sleepy, backward location was because for a decade, you know, that the, the, the communities and the land were devastated through political unrest. So all of the farming fields was, was vacant and deserted. People weren't farming. People weren't fishing. They they were not being productive, and 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 we ha- we there was this this term called the Great Escape, right? People were mm-hmm. hundreds of people daily <laughs> was trying to cross the border, and some successful, and some were not. And you know, one of the one of the motivation of setting up the Shenzhen experiment was to be able to have the possibility to create a city to show people that hey, you know. You can also live a good life here. You don't have to run away. You know that we we can set up something here that is that can keep people, rather than just shutting down the border and not letting people go. And I found that that was kind of a very interesting, and a very interesting attitude by the CCP government at the time, right? To say that rather than treating this great escape heavy-handedly through military. Let's try to create something so people can choose to stay. Mm. And, and that, for me, is, is quite important in terms of a purpose. And in part, I'm, I'm really hoping we're witnessing similar things. It is that, that the, at least the intention behind wanting to continue to allow Shenzhen to be a place of, of kind of national importance to allow it to continue to thrive 
is a way to show and, and to give people choices and, and to be able to show to Hong Kong, to the world, that you can still have a very vibrant and thriving city. However, I, I do think because whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, so much of you know what I'm calling the Shenzhen experiment over the past 40 years, so much of it has yet to be really uh, discussed and discovered and explored is that, you know, what I was saying earlier, this kind of human aspect, this, this kind of the, the choices uh, of the individuals and, and creating a, a really a civic society that allows responsibilities and participation. I, I do hope that this aspect could also be recognized from, say, a policy level and allow the city to continue to be site, the site of inventions and innovations, and in many cases, rule breaking, in order to be, in order to invent new and better things. So, however, this is at 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 a, a contrast to what I've seen as kind of this prevailing attitude since the 2019 announcement. So, I I do think that there is a unfortunate opposing a set of opposing forces. Is that you know what made Shenzhen? I think it what made the city, what allowed the city to continuously thrive and invent and reinvent is a spirit of kind of openness and courage and empowerment to try different things. But with the new, say, Beijing support and attention on the city, I have seen. And it could be coincidental. It could also be, you know, we're witnessing nationwide other type of political directions. This is happening during a time where people are being much more cautious with what they do and what they say. And and this is really at every level from the government all the way to the enterprises. And and that's my worry about what's next for Shenzhen is, is again, if we only look at the city as a economic engine and we overlook these much more civic and entrepreneurial uh, opportunities, then we would, we would really miss one of the greatest lessons that this, this grand experiment has, has been able to teach us. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how that conflict plays out over the, over the next few years from between a government that does seem to prefer a sort of top-down imposition of their ideas versus, as you say, this this wellspring of, of innovation and uh, kind of human energy that that is, has made Shenzhen such a such a vibrant and successful place. And I can only really recommend to listeners that if they want to find out more about the last forty years of the city's history, that they go and pick up a copy of the Shenzhen Experiment, which goes into more depth than we've been able to hear. <laughs> Unfortunately, in what's been a fascinating conversation, including much more about the history of the city before reform and opening and details on the urban villages and all sorts of other fascinating things. So I do hope people will go out and and pick up a copy. And all it remains for me to say is is to thank you uh, very much for joining us and to say again, congratulations on a wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for listening to the Southern Tour podcast. In the next episode, We'll explore a little more of Guangdong's crucial importance 
as a centre of international trade in conversation with Dexter Roberts, author of The Myth of Chinese Capitalism. <laughs>